What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Critical Theory, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Louisa Han, your host for today, and I'm really happy to be sitting with Matthias Thaler to chat about his new book, No Other Planet, which recently came out with University um, Cambridge University Press. Um, so just to introduce Matthias, he is Professor of Political Theory in the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Edinburgh. Um, his recent books include Naming Violence and as co-editor, Political Violence and the Imagination. And his papers have appeared in many peer-reviewed journals, including the British Journal of Political Science, the European Journal of Political Theory, and Perspectives on Politics. Matthias, many thanks for taking the time to talk about your new book, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the invitation, Louisa. Great. Um, So just before we kind of dive into questions, um, I'll just give the audience a little bit of an overview of No Other Planet, which analyzes kind of the many ways um, in which utopianism shapes very different kinds of climate politics um, and visions of the future. So you look at a combination of theoretical and literary texts throughout the book, grouping them into specific tendencies um, or what you sometimes call constellations to demonstrate both the heterogeneity of of contemporary climate utopianism um, and how different utopian forms are often kind of antagonistic and respond to each other's limitations in some ways, if that's fair to say. Um, so I was interested to see the ways in which focusing on the utopian aspects of these modes of thought helped to, to draw out both their potential to shape real political action in the world and the point at which their politics and their kind of theoretical bases start to falter as kind of guiding principles for the future. Um, so I think the book will be interesting to quite a wide range of, of readers, um, including those interested in what we might very broadly term cli-fi and kind of those interested in ongoing political debates um, about how we organise the massive structural and societal changes necessary to have any chance of kind of mitigating the worst impacts of climate change. Um, so with this in mind, I wonder, when did you first start thinking um, about utopianism in relation to ecological crises? And how did you just decide to write the book, really? Thank you, uh, Louisa. So to tell you a bit about the 
origins of the book. Uh, when I had finished my book, Naming Violence, in 2018, it got published. I wanted to continue my investigation of the place of the imagination in political theory. Um, and in this earlier book, Naming Violence, I had focused in particular on the artistic imagination, on the historical imagination, as well as on thought experiments. But what I hadn't done was a focus on utopianism. And instead of just adding another chapter um, to that book, I wanted to uh, continue this uh, examination with a particular focus. And the focus is really, as you said, uh, on the monumental and existential challenge of inhabiting a climate-changed world. So no other planet uh, essentially tries to respond to an observation made by Donna Haraway, namely that the current predicament um, expresses itself in a very problematic binary. On the one hand, we find those who hubristically assert our own ability to innovate ourselves out of this uh, current climate crisis. But I think that's a dead end. And on the other hand, we find a lot of people who commit themselves to defeat these sentiments, to the idea that the game is already over and there's really nothing we can do to change course anymore. Um, and the thought uh, behind the book, No Other Planet, is to harness the power of utopianism to respond to, these, uh, to this binary problem that Dan Haraway so aptly um, diagnoses. Um, so that's where sort of my general interest comes from. I also wanted to um, pay attention not only to what's attractive and beneficial about utopianism, but uh, attend as well to what is risky about it and what might even backfire in some regards. So I didn't want to tell a one-sided story, but uh, hope to offer an even-handed defense of utopianism that also attends to its downsides. And that was the ambition um, uh, behind the overall project. Great. So I think um, you touched on utopianism um, a lot. So I think before we go further into the specific theorists and, and writers mentioned on your book, it would be helpful to consider how utopianism functions um, often in different ways in different historical, historical periods. Um, so how do you broadly define utopianism? Um, and why do you think it's making a comeback now that, you know, neoliberal capitalism is experiencing lots of different intersecting crises, not least the need to revolutionise the kind of the material bases of the economy to avert further ecological destruction. Yeah, uh, naturally, um, uh, I think that's a very important starting point for any investigation of this question. How do you actually define utopia and utopianism? It's obviously a heavily contested concept, and there are also many who object to its current uses as I try to examine in the book. I think broadly speaking, before I come to my positive proposal, I want to identify historically two major strands of criticism to utopianism. On the one hand, there is the view that utopianism amounts to nothing but daydreaming. Uh, and so in some sense, it is just deeply escapist. It allows us to console ourselves about uh, a present that is uh, profoundly disturbing uh, and as such it is completely useless. On the other side of the spectrum there are also those who object to utopianism on the grounds that it is potentially totalitarian. 
So in that sense, utopianism is practical, but it's practically in the wrong way. Uh, now, what I want to do in the book is to not deny the importance of these criticisms, but to work towards an alternative definition that is heavily indebted to the unorthodox French Marxist Miguel Abonsour. And that's a definition that has, uh, in recent times, more prominently defended by uh, one of the most important scholars of utopian studies today, namely Ruth Levitas. And the definition I'm using then as a baseline for all the uh, tendencies and constellations I'm analyzing in the book is that utopianism um, uh, constitutes the education of the desire for other ways of being and living. So there are various concepts that uh, we might want to unravel uh, in understanding this definition. Uh, which is a very wide one. On the one hand, uh, we want to focus on the education. So in some sense, all utopias try to instigate processes of pedagogy uh, in one way or another. And then the other aspect is, of course, this word desire for other ways of being and living, something that is akin to hope and akin to wishing, obviously. This very wide definition of the education of the desire for other ways of being and living allows us to capture plenty of phenomena and experiences. Phenomena and experiences that cross theory building, social and political theory, broadly speaking, narrative art expressed in different media, such as novels, but also films and perhaps even music. And finally, also practical and lived experiences. So that's a third dimension of utopianism that is captured by this very broad definition of an education of the desire for other ways of being and living. What's important and essential to my understanding uh, of utopianism, and here I'm again uh, very strongly influenced by a number of uh, important theorists in utopian studies, is that utopias are not necessarily about perfect blueprints for the future, but they amount to, uh, in essence, uh, experimental kinds of probing of various and sometimes conflicting alternatives. So it's not about a, a unitary end goal of history. It's about trying to examine various alternative pathways into the future. Part of my... Uh, practical understanding of utopianism is that it becomes uh, facilitated through a number of mechanisms. And the key mechanisms that utopianism as this education of desire feeds on are firstly estranging. Uh, so estrangement is a key function and mechanism of all forms of utopianism. Secondly, galvanizing. Uh, utopianism always tries to move an apathetic or uh, perhaps paralyzed audience into action. So there's an, a very intimate relationship between the imagination and the action on this account of utopianism. And finally, cautioning. So sometimes utopias also engage in, uh, in warning an audience about dangers that inhere in the present moment. So that's sort of the broad definition I'm using in, in, the, in the book and that I try to apply to a number of cases, as we will hopefully talk about in a moment. But your second question was really why may we and why can we observe a resurgence of utopianism today? And I think there are a couple of points that one might want to make in this context. First of all, 
it seems to me that it has become more and more obvious that business at u- business at usual is simply not an option anymore when we think about what it means to inhabit a climate-changed world. We all know that things must change uh, in one way or another. We might not know exactly how that uh, should be done, but we certainly need to reorient ourselves. Now, the problem is that the maps we are drawing on when we try to reorient ourselves in uh, the Anthropocene uh, have uh, really lost their suitability. And one way of thinking about utopias that I want to motivate in the book is as maps, um, utopias as maps for an uncertain future. And I think that's one of their main um, their main draws uh, in, in the current moment. And the second perhaps reason why, uh, why we might want to turn to utopianism when we think about the challenges we are facing today is indeed that uh, climate change uh, confronts us with obstacles that are literally like no other. And that means that scientific or technological solutions by themselves will certainly not work unless they are also embedded in and connected to wider reflections around global politics that affect us all. So again, uh, then appeal to uh, business as usual in terms of simply investing hope in technological or scientific solutions strikes me as highly problematic. So the conclusion I draw from this uh, broad uh, conjunctural analysis is that uh, whether we want it or not, we are called upon to engage in some form of social dreaming or utopianism. There's really no way around it. And the proposal that I try to defend in the book is that various utopias, sometimes conflicting utopias, can model, dynamically model, potential futures in such a way as to provide us with orientation around an uncanny landscape, and that is the Anthropocene or our climate-changed world. So again, this is not about producing static blueprints. It's about examining various and sometimes conflicting pathways into an uncertain future. That would be my quick answer to your question. That's great. That's a great answer. Um, So as you kind of touch on there, um, utopianism often takes kind of theoretical and and narrative forms. So I'm wondering whether you could speak a little bit about storytelling's relation to theory, because that's quite um, an important part of your book, um, and how both rather different forms of imaginative thinking kind of interact with each other, particularly in the context of the the utopian imagination. Mm So in the book, I'm trying, uh, as you said, uh, trying to trace different expressions of the utopian imagination in parallel contexts. So on the one hand, I'm focusing on the texts uh, produced by social and political theorists in various traditions. And on the other hand, I connect those texts to fictional narratives around the future of our home planet, planet Earth. There's an underlying wager behind this project and behind the book itself, a sort of unique selling point, if you will. And that is that I believe that speculative fiction, and in particular fantasy, science fiction, climate fiction, can expand the horizon of political theory and vice versa. Political theory can also expand our understanding of speculative fiction. Now, purely in terms of professional and disciplinary um, 
understandings, uh, I think a, a legitimate question then is why would uh, a political and social theorist turn to speculative fiction at all? What is sort of the gained value in, in turning to fiction? And I, I, I do believe there are two reasons why one might want to be tempted to do that. First of all, I believe that these different expressions of the utopian imagination, theory building on the one hand, narrative uh, fiction on the other, storytelling on the other, can, as I said already, illuminate uh, each other. So they can reveal both strengths and weaknesses, fundamental insights and also structural limitations of the other side. Very simply put, uh, whereas theorists tend to try to systematically address questions arising from the Anthropocene, naturally fiction writers respond to climate change in a much more poetic fashion. And what speculative fiction does so helpfully, I believe, is that it adds experiential and affective texture and narrative complication to the more abstract, rationalistic reflections of social and political theorists. So we get uh, a sense of how it would be to inhabit a particular world much better from reading and engaging with speculative fiction. And that helps us in understanding the actual complexity of utopian visions. And the second uh, proposal I want to pursue in the book is that perhaps it might even be possible to argue that storytelling itself harbors resources of direct relevance to social and political theory. So in some ways, I want to propose and suggest and examine that literature itself can be read as promulgating a kind of theory itself, but one that maybe traditional registers of interpretation are unable to easily unlock. So the central goal, in a way, of the book, the wager behind it, is that I want to convince fellow political theorists to take fiction seriously. And part of the interpretive work I'm engaged in in the book is to demonstrate practically what lessons can be gained from dealing uh, with various forms of storytelling. Um, and the reason for, for this move is really that I believe especially Anglophone political theory can be quite narrow in some sense. And I try to counteract that tendency by opening up the range of resources that we draw on within political theory as we engage with such a complex problem as climate change. Mm. So briefly, let's just kind of go back to the idea of estrangement you noted before um, in helping us to kind of consider paths for, for climate um, sort of remediation. Um, as this concept is, I suppose, fundamental to utopian thinking, as you said, um, you know, that capacity to, to extricate yourself from or think beyond the world directly in front of you. So in the book, you make a point of differentiating between estrangement from and estrangement for the world. So could you expand a little on what the differences are and what both types of estrangement work kind of to achieve, I suppose? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as you observed, I do believe, and this is in line with basically everyone who has ever thought about utopianism, um, I do believe that estrangement, the in induction of estrangement, is really a crucial element of for all forms of utopianism. So raising a, a what-if question, you know, what would happen if we did X, Y, Z, tries to defamiliarize us uh, from deeply held beliefs, um, in some ways to render unfamiliar what often appears to be entirely natural and, and normal, and vice versa, of course. 
So the effect of such an estrangement strategy that inheres in all forms of utopianism is to interpolate the reader to see the world from new and unexpected angles and thereby critique is exercised. So through the creation of distance, um, through this estrangement process, critique is enabled in some important ways. As you say, uh, um, in my concrete discussion of the utopian device of estrangement, I focus on an idea developed by the literary theorist Svetlana Boim, um, which is to distinguish between two ways of thinking about estrangement. And that's an analytical distinction between estrangement from the world and estrangement for the world. I believe this distinction is very helpful for thinking about social dreaming and utopianism because some types of estrangement can be problematic and others can be helpful for thinking about our current predicament. So to give you an example, in the current ecological crisis, there are those who reflect on the escape from our planet Earth as um, a solution to the ongoing environmental breakdown. So escaping from this planet is a fantasy promulgated by the likes of tech billionaires like Elon Musk. It's an important topic uh, in many popular films. Just think about um, the film Interstellar, for example. And in some ways, I think this is an example of estrangement from the world. It's uh, an attempt to think about uh, another world that makes it impossible for us to grapple in earnest and realistically with the problems we are facing on this very planet. So estrangement from the world is something that I would be critical of, and it's a kind of utopianism that uh, we should be skeptically um, uh, analyzing and turn to alternative visions of the future. So estrangement for the world would be a mode of social dreaming that begins by accepting our eco-social grounding on this very planet. So the utopian visions I'm interested in in the book and that I believe are potentially useful for grappling with the ecological crisis are what I call disworldly utopias. Um, so utopias that do produce estrangement, that try to create distance between our current moment and a potentially more positive future, but they accept our eco-social grounding on this planet and refrain from the kind of escapism uh, of the billionaires like Musk and others that strikes me as profoundly problematic. But ultimately, I think estrangement has these two sides, um, one uh, world negating and one world disclosing. And we can never really escape this tension um, because it is baked into the very act of social dreaming, I believe. Great. Yeah. So let's look into the, the chapters themselves now, the actual theorists and, and fiction that you look at. So chapter three starts to look at um, this concept of estrangement for the world through the, the work of, of Bruno Latour and James Lovelock, whose Gaia theory, I think maybe listeners may have heard of, um, given the criticism it's received, I suppose, throughout the years. Um, 
So can you provide a brief overview of, of Gaia theory and how it relates to Latour's work um, on kind of modern understandings of what's often termed this nature-culture divide? Yeah, so James Lovelock, um, as you know, was an inventor, an engineer, and a scientist who is today probably best known for his theory of Gaia, or what he calls the Gaia hypothesis. The hypothesis itself went through different iterations, and I need to massively simplify things here. But in essence, Gaia uh, describes an understanding of planet Earth as composed of different and interdependent feedback loops that form a self-regulating system. So organisms on this account are essentially entangled with the environment and together they create the conditions for continuing life on the planet. This view then led Lovelock um, over a very long uh, and eventful career to conclude that Gaia as a complex entity in itself involving the Earth's biosphere, its atmosphere, the oceans and the soil itself, Gaia itself is somehow alive. And that's very important, the thought that the planet itself is alive. As a cybernetic system, Gaia seeks an optimal physical and chemical environment for life on the planet itself. So there is some form of intentionality ascribed here to Gaia itself. Now, the late uh, French sociologist uh, Bruno Latour took up this idea of Gaia in a series of lectures in Edinburgh in 2013 and tried to see how it might be used for investigating um, uh, the implications uh, of Gaia for society and politics today. In essence, on Latour's view, the Gaia hypothesis amounts to a view of not only the natural, but also the social world in which, and I quote here, no one is passive. So there is no pass passive um, um, subjectivity or objectivity on Gaia, everyone and everything is somehow active. So agency is much more widely distributed than one would normally assume, especially, um, that's especially important for those who wish to assign a special status to our own species in struggling and contending uh, with Gaia. So it's, it's absolutely not surprising, I think, that uh, Latour, as one of the stalwarts, of actor network theory felt uh, very attracted to Lovelock's idea of Gaia um, because this understanding of uh, a living planet, a planet that is somehow alive, raises very important questions for scientific inquiry and what we actually do as social but also as natural scientists. And what is more, it also raises very, very central and important lessons for politics and society more widely. So this is why um, Latour inaugurates what he calls a new climate regime in which the um, traditional perhaps uh, and wrong, um, uh, wrongly understood uh, separation of nature and culture is um, reconfigured. So he prefers the language of new climate regime uh, instead of the Anthropocene, but essentially we're talking here about the same um, period of human interaction. So what is essential to this view is that the planet itself is now an actor with, with whom humanity uh, in various ways needs to contend in one way or another. And this, re this leads naturally to a completely new and also estranged view of our species' place on the planet, I would argue. Yeah, and as part of this, um, Latour's kind of 
exploration of, of Gaia, he expounds upon this idea of, of the terrestrial or the, the down-to-earth politics um, as kind of vital for a left ecology. Um, and I think at first glance, the focus on a kind of return to nature could be seen to align with a more reactionary politics, maybe, of kind of, you know, belonging to the soil, quote-unquote. Um, so how does Latour and his handling of the Gaia concept move such politics leftwards, and in what ways could it be described as utopian? So before I explain why I want to argue that uh, Latour's um, interpretation of the Gaia hypothesis and his notion of the terrestrial or the earthbound or down to earth are actually utopian in nature, um, I need to uh, make clear that Latour himself was in fact vehemently opposed to the very idea of utopianism. And it's important to understand why, um, because it feeds into your question, I think. Um, Latour believes that um, utopianism is really the same as escapism. So he associates it much more with the techno-optimistic fantasies of billionaires that want to escape from our planet. So the quest for life beyond the Earth's critical zone is really futile on Latour's view. And instead, he proposes this concept of the terrestrial or the earthbound yeah, which he develops in particular in a book uh, called Down to Earth, which is a sort of follow-up to his Gaia lectures in Edinburgh. Now, the terrestrial dimension of our planetary existence manifests itself as an alternative to two hegemonic ways of understanding the new climate regime. And these hegemonic ways are, on the one hand, a return to the local to the soil, a sort of romantic um, understanding of nature, which is today, politically speaking, the promise of nativist populists who offer their constituencies some form of nostalgic homecoming. Yeah? And that's something that uh, Latour wants to resist when he coins the term the terrestrial. He doesn't want the return to the local, to the soil in one way or another. And on the other hand, he also rejects um, uh, modernity in its expansionist or globalist drive. So it's also against globalization, we might say, uh, in very broad terms. And between these two terms, the local and the global, is uh, a slim glimmer of hope. And that's uh, what he calls the earthbound existence that we should celebrate. Yeah? And the terrestrial is in, in some ways uh, a very helpful way uh, of thinking about alternative politics that tries to avoid both a, a return to populism that grounds uh, its nativism in some form of nostalgic homecoming, but also uh, a rejection of, uh, of globalization in its most neoliberal form. So when I say that Latour is utopian here, I'm somewhat reading him against the grain. Um, I'm suggesting that the Gaia figure uh, is a utopian figure and the terrestrial is a utopian concept to the extent that it manages to estrange us from deeply established ways of being and living. Again, it's an attempt to educate us into different and better ways of being and living by recognizing uh, humanity's entanglement with a world in which no one is passive. Uh, and, and through recognizing uh, that our, our planet, our home planet in itself is afforded some 
relevant uh, form of agency, I think our species' proclivity for self-assertion, for arrogance, is somewhat disenchanted. And through this, that's a very important element of the estranging critique that the Gaia hypothesis, I think, sets in motion. Mm. So alongside Latour and, and Lovelock's theories, you explore the work of, of fantasy writer N.K. Jemison in her, her Broken Earth trilogy. Um, so I'm wondering why you chose to examine this alongside Lovelock and Latour and how you think it kind of unsettles readers' view um, of our relation to the Earth. Yeah, so the, the, again, the, the point of the chapter on planet Earth as an actor uh, is to contrast this Gaia figure with a prominent um, science fiction uh, or fantasy trilogy by N.K. Jamison, that's the Broken Earth trilogy. And my interpretation uh, argues that the trilogy approaches many of these themes that Latour raises as well, but it does so from a completely unique and very surprising and interesting angle. So this trilogy describes a fantasy world in which humans with various capacities, including magical capacities, contend, struggle, and ultimately reconcile themselves with their existence on our planet, this planet, planet Earth, what Jamison calls Father Earth, though. It's a far future narrative, several thousand years in the future, with a few key features. Uh, On the one hand, it describes uh, and portrays a very tight-knit intergenerational group of survivors of environmental disaster. It gives an account of our home planet, um, Father Earth, in her diction, as a living and raging entity that enacts brutal retaliation for the harm done to it by humans. And finally, Jamison, I believe, understands violence amongst humans as well as between humans and other species as cyclical in character. So violence, violence usually creates, creates more violence. Um, and the challenge is really how we, we may break this cycle, including how we may renegotiate some form of peace with our home planet. Now, the antidote and one of the key themes in the, in the book to this uh, universal presence of violence is interpersonal and interspecies solidarity. Um, and what is interesting about the trilogy, I think, is that it tries to deconstruct a very dominant trope uh, that keeps on, um, I think, keeps being present in much of in many corners of sci-fi, namely the trope of the lone wolf, uh, the, the, often the white uh, hero who survives the apocalypse alone. Uh, and Jamison's trilogy tries to offer us another perspective for how we might deal with catastrophic uh, climate breakdown. The universe that she um, constructs is premised on the existence of irradicable and ongoing conflicts between various parties. Again, a very close, I think, um, similarity to Latour here. Uh, It produces estrangement in uh, interesting and surprising ways. In in particular, when you read these novels, I think it sheds a surprising light um, on how we might conceive life on a planet that is uh, active itself, that is not purely passive. 
So the fantasy world, and here is we see a, a clear parallel to uh, Latour, uh, imagines a climate change planet in which uh, Father Earth itself has become an agent with whom we as humans with various abilities and capabilities and vulnerabilities need to content. There's a clear, for me at least, parallel between um, the planet imagined by Jamison and the Gaia figure. Now, in my reading of both Latour and uh, then um, Jamison, I highlight both parallels and also some dissimilarities, of course, but I identify one potential issue with this specific utopian vision in general. And that issue is what I um, identify as indeterminacy in a very broad sense. In other words, while the production of estrangement is incredibly important for utopian fiction and theory, um, another aspect of far future narratives and narratives of, of extreme estrangement is, the, is that they might make it a bit difficult uh, for us here and now to draw concrete lessons from those fictional depictions. So one potential concern uh, with Jamison's narrative is that it prioritizes uh, this estrangement function at the expense of concrete suggestions, how we should act here and now. And that's something that the other chapters in the book try to address in various ways. Mm, yeah, so let's move on to those other chapters now. A slightly slightly sharp turn away from the Gaia and the and the terrestrial um, towards um, this concept of eco-modernism, which listeners interested in left climate debates may well be familiar with. Um, I think increasingly it seems to me it's used in a kind of a pejorative sense to describe a kind of blue skies eco-politics. So I'm wondering whether you could give us a quick overview of eco-modernism's primary formulations um, and tell us a little bit about some of its chief proponents just to start us off. Yeah, so the second uh, big utopian constellation that I'm dealing with in the book is indeed eco-modernism, as you say, and it's broadly an optimistic view according to which uh, humans with their various abilities and capabilities can become confident earth makers and can actually inaugurate um, a good Anthropocene as the apex of our species ingenuity. Very important uh, to note from the get-go is that this is a relatively broad church movement that includes both right and left-wing thinkers and writers. But there are a couple of key ideas, I think, that unite most eco-modernists. Uh, the first uh, is perhaps that economic and or population growth is not a problem per se, um, so that we can reconcile um, a robust uh, response to the climate crisis with a continued commitment to both economic and population growth. Economic stability uh, and growth is therefore very important for um, environmental action to work. Um, development uh, projects are foregrounded in most eco-modernist um, uh, visions, even if this leads to increased fossil fuel use. So this is a very important aspect. Again, the emphasis on growth and the importance of science and technology. And another aspect that is frequently highlighted is that almost all eco-modernist discourse relies on a number of uh, illuminating, um, in some ways, uh, rhetorical metaphors, such as most importantly, the metaphor of decoupling human uh, from environmental processes. A very important uh, 
early formulation of the eco-modernist idea was made by the U.S. think tank uh, Breakthrough Institute in 2015. Uh, in their manifesto, they argue for uh, a good uh, Anthropocene that would be premised on the harnessing of the power of science and technology to, and here I'm using the metaphor, decouple human from environmental development. So this will naturally require a number of groundbreaking science uh, and technology, such as, for example, geoengineering, but also carbon capture, um, for which we already possess the basic know-how. So that's a very important uh, thought in the eco-modernist camp, that we already possess many of the basic technologies. We just need to scale them up significantly. If you're looking for a rather famous uh, liberal uh, in some ways perhaps conservative, even um, representative of this type of eco-modernism and this type of utopianism, you might uh, quickly um, uh, encounter Steven Pinker, who is particularly famous for his recent bestseller, The Better Angels of Our Nature. But in recent work, he has further elaborated on the eco-modernist idea. So on this particular view, modernity and capitalism are essentially forces for good. They have just recently received a particularly bad press and we need to recover them from this bad press. The progress that we have made as a species is much more pronounced than do-mongers want us to believe. And some forms of environmentalism on the eco-modernist view, for example, post-growth um, ideas, are genuinely problematic and need to be resisted. Um, so eco-modernists are generally opposed to uh, any form of critique of growth paradigms. So this would be the sort of standard critique. Uh, interestingly, um, as you say, there are also quite a few on the left who believe in the compossibility of economic uh, and population growth with a robust uh, response to the ecological crisis. Again, within the left, uh, and there is a vast diversity of positions ranging from those who wish to strengthen the state as the motor behind the Green New Deal, for example, to those who prefer much more bottom-up environmentalism led by social movements. But what all of these different positions share is a commitment to an effective state of hope vis-a-vis -vis the future. So what makes them um, examples of utopianism in the broad sense uh, that, that we talked about before is that they recognize the severity of the ongoing ecological crisis, but they also try to inflate the potential that the future still holds for us. They try to, in some ways, galvanize uh, an audience that has become apathetic or depressed or paralyzed when thinking about what should be done about our climate change world. Of course, one of the ideas I'm trying to pursue in the book is that in all types of eco-modernism, we find traces of wishful thinking that in some ways or another could be considered problematic. And the reason is uh, uh, quite straightforwardly that most eco-modernists underestimate the actual challenge awaiting us and thereby, I think, um, fall foul of some very important considerations when we try to navigate ourselves through this particularly problematic situation we find ourselves in. 
Mm. So staying with this chapter on eco-modernism, you place this theoretical work that you've mentioned against the science fiction of Kim Stanley Robinson, who's produced, you know, a really significant body of speculative work about about climate change in both the near and the distant future. So I'm interested in this question of Robinson's utopianism, um, as I, I read the Ministry for the Future fairly recently, which kind of starts off by describing this really catastrophic heat wave, which kills millions of people and kind of moves through the gritty bureaucratic processes involved with like mitigating the impact of future events and it's quite far from utopian in some senses so with this in mind how does robinson's work align with eco-modernist tenets while rejecting wishful thinking and kind of hubristic attitudes towards our capacity to save ourselves through scientific innovation i turn to kim stanley robinson because i would consider him to be the most important political novelist in the US right now. His recent success with uh, the book that you just mentioned, Louisa, Minister of the Future, has been inc- incredibly impressive and has brought him to the forefront of many debates about climate change. But as, as many uh, will know, he has been thinking about these questions for 30 odd years. He has been occupied with utopian projects uh, ever since he started uh, writing, ever since uh, his early Three Californias trilogy and ever since the Mars trilogy. And he has also thought very deeply about climate change. He's an early proponent of so-called climate fiction that we touched upon already. So in the book, I don't focus on the Ministry of the Future. I focus on an earlier trilogy from the mid-2000s entitled The Science in the Capital Trilogy that is today also edited uh, and has been rewritten, in fact, by Robinson as uh, a, a novel called Green Earth. So what Robinson tries to do in this uh, set of books is he tries to probe the credentials of a scientific community that um, has uh, become immunized against capitalist co-optation and is now willing to mount political struggles in defense uh, of nature. Uh, What is very unique, I think, about this trilogy is that it focuses uh, on a detailed study of the National Science Foundation, which is the national funding body for scientific inquiry in the United States, and thereby tries to locate the motor and vehicle behind progressive action in a state-sponsored organization that funds and coordinates technological innovations. So in some sense, and this makes it a very peculiar kind of utopia, uh, this is a bureaucratic utopia. Uh, And the underlying uh, idea um, in uh, these books is that ecological crisis can only be tackled if scientists take their political responsibilities seriously, on the one hand, and if politicians start uh, listening uh, in earnest to what scientists have to say. So in this marriage between science and politics, we find uh, a solution uh, Robinson wants to suggest. So there are really three key ideas then in, 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 in the trilogy, I believe. First, uh, I already touched on this, uh, we find a adoration, a veneration of bureaucratic modes of politics. That's a very peculiar, um, I think, um, idea, but one that's very clearly present in in the trilogy. So through this um, uh, wedding of science and progressive politics, we might develop a way out of the current crisis. 
Second, there is also a, uh, an emphasis on the interdependence of science and rationality and spirituality. So Robinson emphasizes that uh, any solution to the climate crisis that is focused on rationality alone uh, will inevitably falter and fail. The climate crisis also requires us to change spiritually um, our paths. And he investigates this through an interesting um, uh, conversation and engagement with Buddhism in the trilogy. And the third and perhaps most important aspect, and that's the point where I believe his uh, narrative exploration of eco-modernism deviates significantly from the theoretical positions, he imagines uh, the alternative future uh, through multiple pathways out of impending catastrophe. So there is no silver bullet. There cannot be a singular and simple solution, but we require various experiments in alternative thinking and acting to move forward. And the most important part of these experiments is indeed a decoupling process, but it's not decoupling of um, uh, human from natural development processes, but it's a decoupling of science and technology from capitalism. So this is a celebration of uh, a scientific mode of being that is uh, independent, uh, has become independent from capitalist cooptation. I entitled the chapter The Paleo Paleolithic uh, with Good Dental Care for a specific reason, because this is in fact his vision of the, uh, of the future. We might live actually a, in some ways, um, a post-growth life in the future, but we still benefit from good dental care as a really crucial um, aspect of the good life. So we require science and technology, even though we might move beyond capitalism in this climate-changed world. So I believe this attempt to explore multiple pathways out of the current crisis insulates Robinson to some extent, but not fully, from the suspicion of wishful thinking, which I would consider problematic in many of those theories that we talked about just a moment before. Great. So let's take a look at your next constellation of thinkers who are kind of almost the polar opposites of, of the eco-modernists and focusing on the potential for climate change to trigger cataclysmic collapse. Um, so one of the notable examples you include is a group called the Dark Mountain Movement who totally reject technological solutionism in favour of finding hope in the face of, you know, the collapse of various systems of civilization, essentially. So how do theorists who view catastrophe on the horizon attempt to maintain reasons for hope and, and galvanize political action? And I suppose what kind of criticisms of groups like the Dark Mountain Project attracted for, for these beliefs? Yeah, so the third big utopian constellation I'm interested in deals indeed with those who think that the ecological breakdown is unavoidable or perhaps it is already happening or in some ways perhaps it has already happened and we live already through post-apocalyptic times. What's shared, I think, among all of those thinkers and writers is that they believe uh, that the environmental breakdown should not anymore be imagined as an extraordinary event that will happen sometime in a faraway future. But rather today, uh, I think they argue, we are mostly aware that climate change has already triggered a state of permanent crisis that cannot be reversed anymore in any meaningful sense. So in other ways, the cataclysm 
um, as it is in, in imagined by these utopian projects, has become routinized and integrated into our life worlds. And that's a sentiment, I think, that we have become quite accustomed to during the COVID-19 pandemic. This risk perspective, uh, I believe, informs much of our current thinking about uh, climate change at the moment. It's not about the future anymore. It's about the present, about an ever uh, more frightening present, if you will. And in this context, uh, these dystopias uh, perform a very important function when they educate our um, uh, desire for other ways of being and living. Namely, they try to warn an audience about threats that are imminent, but whose true causes uh, are still hidden from public purview. So the challenge that you just talked about, and I'm going to um, focus on the Dark Mountain Collective in a moment, the challenge is that this cautionary pedagogy is always precarious and is always under threat. Because if the future and the present is depicted in too bleak terms and colors, then it runs the risk of paralyzing its addressees. And then we end up in the position that Haraway is so critical of, namely we might just draw the conclusion that the game is already over and there's nothing we can do to change course anymore. So the doom and gloom discourse, which is very present in, uh, in, public, in the public at the moment, essentially asks us yeah, if what is on the horizon is indeed so terrible as you all say, why should we even bother to fight back against the looming catastrophe? And a number of authors I'm interested in this chapter struggle with this particular tension at the heart of the cautionary pedagogy of dystopias. Among them uh, is Roy Scranton, an American um, uh, writer, but also the members of the Dark Mountain Collective that you just alluded to. What they essentially argue is that our civilization, and they use various monikers to describe um, this subjectivity, sometimes they speak of fossil fuel capitalism, sometimes they speak of our world. Um, our civilization is, is a very frequent um, uh, name as well that they use. Our civilization is already dead in an important sense, but they still try to reconcile this observation with the idea that we should try to resist defeatism, that there is something that's still for us to be done. Now, in my analysis of these uh, various authors and thinkers, um, I suggest that uh, their dystopian visions of the future remain still sustained by a form of hope and hoping that Jonathan Lear calls radical. So what makes some types of hoping radical, according to Lear, is that they are unable to articulate in any kind of detail what good will eventually emerge from the catastrophic present. So they are able to gesture towards a future that will come and in which there will be some place for us humans, but they are unable or incapable to explain in any kind of detail how that future will look like. So in some ways, and this is why it is an interesting form of uh, dystopianism, this is a negative utopianism where a positive future is implicitly or explicitly affirmed, but its concrete shape is not drawn out. Uh, Russell Jacobi has called this iconoclastic utopianism, a utopianism that smashes any picture of the future but still remains 
committed to the radical hope that something good will eventually emerge. Great. So your kind of your fictional complement um, or comparison, I suppose, to this theoretical body of work is is Margaret Atwood's Mad Adam trilogy, which embodies what the writer herself um, has termed a eustopia. So can you expand on this concept a little um, and explain how Atwood navigates climate dystopia in, in relation to kind of the aforementioned theorists? Mm-hmm. So just like Robinson and Jamison, Atwood has not only written utopian as well as dystopian novels, she has also explicitly reflected on the nature of social dreaming itself. So she has contributed to um, the theorizing of utopianism. And one of her key uh, convictions is indeed that utopias and dystopias contain within themselves their respective negations. In other words, every utopia possesses already dystopian elements and every dystopia possesses utopian elements. And um, to capture this intermingling of these two perspectives, she has coined the term astopia. Um, you pronounce it differently, uh, so I'm sure. Yeah, so I said utopia. I assumed it was like utopia, dystopia. I think you're absolutely right. I've never heard this word spoken out loud, yeah. so I defer to the native speaker. It sounds much better this way. So... Uh, um, Atwood's Matt Adam trilogy, which is the focus of this chapter, is really a very good example of this particular intermingling of utopia and dystopia in Atwood's reflections on social dreaming. The story uh, tells, um, the story focuses on a very small group of humans who survived a global pandemic that has wiped out almost all all our um, species. And the pandemic is itself a response to a climate crisis, we might want to say. And what makes these books so interesting um, from the perspective of us thinking about the apocalypse is that it moves back and forth between a storyline that explains the unfolding catastrophe um, of a world characterized by catastrophic um, climate change and another one that depicts how the surviving humans build a common future with other species. So not only with other humans, but with other species, including some uh, genetically engineered um, human hybrids. So the trilogy attempts to visualize the breakdown, not only as the apocalyptic end of an era, but also as an opportunity for pondering what might lie beyond the Anthropocene, we might think, what might what might uh, be beyond uh, the current horizon. So I, I identify three key features in these uh, novels. The first is, and this uh, harks back to what we just talked about, that there is a potential for thinking about the apocalypse to disclose radically new routes towards a new beginning. And that's sort of the um, the, the positive impact that uh, I think Edward celebrates in this trilogy uh, when she shows us um, new forms of sociality emerging from the breakdown. A very important other aspect, the second one, is the centrality of polyphonic storytelling. So in the trilogy, various voices are foregrounded as uh, narrative devices. And that, I think, brings home the idea that the Anthropocene and our climate change world and the breakdown need to be told from several and sometimes conflicting viewpoints. And that emphasizes uh, and impresses on us the uh, notion that humanity is, in fact, not a homogenous actor when it comes to grappling with our climate change world. Rather, 
we need to listen to and learn from many different perspectives. So this polyphonic storytelling is a very important narrative device in her trilogy. And finally, this understanding uh, that emerges from uh, the final book of a sociality, of a form of living together that is non-anthropocentric. So after the breakdown, humans will have to negotiate again their place within a new landscape, an uncanny and very frightening landscape uh, that is composed of both humans and non-humans. And we need to find a new peace in this context. So uh, maybe a final point on Atwood here that satire and humor play a very important role in, in, these, uh, in these books. And I think the role in the context of dystopias is to uh, make uh, the depiction of uh, a very, very dark uh, future a little bit more bearable. So mm. without this satire and humor, um, it would be a very, very difficult read that I think would make it not as interesting either. So I think the that's a very important element of her um, uh, dystopia here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, we've been going for a little while now. So let's wrap up our discussion by kind of homing in on your conclusion, which sums up how looking at competing utopian trends, I suppose, can help us navigate the politics of the future. So the device or the concept through which you structure this conclusion is that of, and you have to excuse my pronunciation, um, Solbruchstelle? Um, or a breaking point. Oh, so can you explain the meaning of this concept a little further and why it's helpful for um, engaging in future-oriented thinking? Yes, thank you very much. Um, I would like to translate this German word Sollbruchstelle as uh, maybe along the lines of predetermined fault line. Um, and I think uh, you know a, a predetermined fault line essentially marks the location in any given structure where a breaking point is to be foreseen and artificially then created. So bridges have typically predetermined fault lines uh, to enable them to collapse in the case of breakdown in such a way as to minimize the overall damage. If, you, if you're looking for a more mundane example, chocolate bars also have um, predetermined fault lines so we can break them up better and share the chocolate now, what can we learn from uh, this particular notion? What can we take from this specific idea? My argument in the conclusion is that um, uh, given that all forms of utopian thinking remain pervaded by uh, a tension, a tension between estrangement for and from the world, um, we need to think about how we should construct them so as to break down safely, if you will. So um, the, the danger of failure and of breakdown cannot be avoided in utopias. I have focused on three in particular. First of all, I focused on the problem of indeterminacy in utopias, focused on estrangement. Uh, if you raise a what-if question, then you will very frequently end up with relatively indeterminate outcomes. Um, in more positive visions of the future, the danger is wishful thinking. And this can be variously negotiated, but it's not an aspect of utopianism that can simply be eliminated. And then finally, in the more darker visions um, of uh, dystopias, the risk is defeatism. And again, that's one of the risks that I don't think can be easily overcome. So the conclusion I draw from this analysis and from my reading of both the theories and the novelists I'm interested in, in this book is that there are positive examples of productive utopias for our times. 
and they are characterized by an ability to remain self-reflexively attuned to their own proclivity for failure. So insofar as novelists reflect on the ways in which their utopian visions can break down, uh, can succumb to indeterminacy, wishful thinking or defeatism, I think they show us how we may be able to negotiate some of those predetermined fault lines. What emerges then, I think, from this analysis is that utopianism is really a form of critique that is premised on a flexible method of anticipating various futures. Again, it's not about um, uh, static blueprints. It's about examining with various methods um, the ways in which we could think about um, other ways of being and living. And I end the book uh, with a celebration of a famous uh, saying by Samuel Beckett that I think serves as a good motto for the kind of utopianism I'm particularly keen on. And that motto is ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. So that would be sort of the conclusion that I would draw from my reading of various kinds of utopias. Great. Thank you. I think that's a fabulous place to to wrap up. Um, So I guess my final question, which I ask everyone on the show is, uh, what are you working on now? I'm currently making steps towards my next project, um, and this will uh, continue where we just ended, I think. It will involve thinking a bit more deeply about the generative potential of failure for politics more widely. I think we began this conversation when I uh, confessed that I started this book we just uh, discussed um, um, uh, at the moment when I understood that you know I wasn't entirely happy with the book I had written before uh, so I felt a bit of unease about the conclusions of my prior book um, and I think my next book will do exactly the same I feel that the topic of failure deserves more attention in political theory and that's what I hope to accomplish in my next project sounds fascinating Matthias thank you so much for joining me thank you very much Luisa it was fantastic thank you